situation. He took a pinch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Lee. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Germans Bob Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers. We know it. Ask me about my winner. The Los Angeles Angels came into Major League Baseball in 1961 as an expansion team. The New York Mets followed them into baseball just a year later in 1962. Since then, there have been two New York baseball teams, the Yankees and the Mets, and two Los Angeles teams, the Dodgers and the Angels. Of course, the Angels went from L.A. to California to Anaheim to basically back in Los Angeles, where they really have been the whole time. That's neither here nor there, but what is fascinating is never before until this season have both New York teams and both Los Angeles teams been in first place in Major League Baseball at the same time. I think it's it's one of the most fascinating things that you're ever going to see in 60 years that's never happened until this past week. All four teams at this moment, are still in first place. And like I said, in 60 years, you figured at least once when you went from two divisions to three divisions to interleague play with all this different changes throughout baseball that it would have happened at least once for one day, it is not. One of the things that is fascinating me this year is talking about the NBA and the playoffs And I think that the Memphis Grizzlies are not given anywhere near the amount of credit they deserve for what they're doing and what they can do right now. And a lot of the discussion has been about the other teams, whether it's Phoenix or Golden State. Uh, Some people may be giving Dallas a little bit of a puncher's chance to make it out of the West and into the NBA Finals. But the the narrative about the Memphis Grizzlies has been very simple. It's been centered around why they've overachieved this year, why their future may look great, but looking at the reality of the future, they're not made to pass this round. They're not made to be good enough to beat the Golden State Warriors, and Uh, You saw them yesterday, and John Morant basically putting a team on his back. And you're going to have games like that, no matter matter what. A guy like John Morant, a prolific player with that much talent, is going to be able to put his team on 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 his back every once in a while. But the depth of that team and the constant backlash about the team not being ready, maybe not being mature enough, and the whole narrative about the Golden State Warriors, the great champions that they've been, Steph and Clay and Draymond Green and Steve Kerr, and you can talk about what they've done and really being basketball's latest and last dynasty, and I think there's a lot that's been put together with that. Hey, how they retooled on the fly, uh, developed a Jordan Poole, and even a a Jonathan Kaminga, who you kind of see is working his way into being a very significant NBA player. The, you know, acquiring Andrew Wiggins and just getting themselves through when their dynasty seems like it was over, basically took a year or so off and got themselves back towards the top of the Western Conference. And I think the discussion is going to continue to be about Golden State being back. And I think we have 
kind of embrace the fact that they're back before really giving them credit for being back. You know, Draymond Green, as, tra as transcending of a player as he is, he is. He's the quarterback of that, that team. They don't do what they do without him. But he's, he, he kind of decides that he wants to do what he wants when he wants. You know, he plays a physical game. His intent is to get under the skin of his opposition. And in several situations, he puts his team at a disadvantage. Now, you could talk about the, the play in game one where he ended up getting the, the flagrant two foul and being ejected from the game. You could say it was a soft call. Um, a lot of the replays that are circulating or have been circulating since that play happened sh show the, the, the impact of him grabbing him by his jersey, pulling him down, and then pulling him back up as if that was the reason it was a flagrant two foul. Now, if you fast forward a couple seconds before, you see Draymond Green striking you know, the player right smack in the face. Now, it was inadvertent. It didn't look like it was. Uh, uh, he didn't. He didn't wind up and hit him, but it was a reckless play, and reckless play like that is going to put Draymond Green in a position where he could be a detriment to the Golden State Warriors. Now, Dray Draymond Green on his own podcast is going to tell you the exact opposite. He's going to tell you how he is the quarterback of the Golden State Warriors. What a I agree. The best defensive player in the NBA right now. Yes, hands down. I believe that. He's better than Marcus Smart. And Marcus Smart is a great defensive player. But when is Draymond Green's antics and his insistence on getting under the skin of his opposition going to lead the Golden State Warriors down? Because I think that's something that's going to be a matter of when, not if. Now, does it happen in this game? Because all of a sudden, and it's not like it's it's something that he, he hasn't done before, he is uh, he's got the eyes of the officials on him. Every single thing he's doing. When he talks to smack to the opposition. When he complains about a foul or a non-foul. The referees are going to know this going in. They're going to know that Draymond Green is going to be a problem. And is that helping the Golden State Warriors? Or is that hurting the Golden State Warriors? And then the continuous narrative is going to be that the Memphis Grizzlies can't win this series. And I don't, I don't, I don't believe it. I, I believe that Memphis can win this series and get to the Western Conference Finals. Can they beat Phoenix? Listen, I think this is looking. If you watch the Phoenix Suns and Devin Booker with a scare and uh, you know the injury that you thought was going to require him to be out more and longer than he is, looks like the Suns have dodged that. If they have Devin Booker and Chris Paul in the backcourt, DeAndre Ayton. Jay Crowder, who I, I think is a little bit of a Draymond Green light, you know, just an antagonizer, a guy that wants to get under the skin of the opposition, piss people off, but he, he's good. He works for that team. I feel like it's Phoenix's year, but I think we're so quick to pull down Memphis and basically make them out to be kind of... A, a team that that should be happy with what they got. Hey, they should just be grateful that they got to the playoffs and won a series. Now, listen, it was a contested series. The Minnesota Timberwolves gave them something, and I give them credit for that. The Minnesota Timberwolves gave the Grizzlies a nice fight, but 
you know, this thought that the Grizzlies should just be happy. They're a young team. It's supposed to be about the other teams in the Western Conference this year. I don't believe any of that. I think the Memphis Grizzlies are good right now and ready right now to make a run to the NBA Finals. We'll see. I could, I got them beating Golden State. That's going to be tough. It's not going to be an easy series. I don't think Memphis is going to win the next three and win four to one. But I'm saying it right now. I got Memphis beating Golden State and getting to the Western Conference Finals. Memphis-Phoenix is going to be fun. I said before, and I'm not backing off of my uh, my, my earlier prediction, Miami-Boston in a, the Eastern Conference Finals. And, and you could say, oh, man, John, you, you, know, you went with the front runners. You went with the one-two seeds. All the discussion this year has been about why the one-two seeds in each of these respective conferences aren't as good as they are. So it, it's, it's actually going against the trend or bucking the trend of what a lot of people are predicting. Um, how many people had the Brooklyn Nets making a run in the Eastern Conference playoffs? And you, you saw what held them back. They don't play any defense. They don't have a lot of continuity. I don't. I don't think they're. You know, the the scheme of the way they're running their offense and defense is working. Which you know, how much of that you want to throw on the coach? How much you want to throw on the big players, Durant and Irving, who are essentially the general managers and running that organization? But a lot of people are like, hey, this Brooklyn team, seated <laughs> number seven, should be making a deep run into the playoffs and. They, they were embarrassed. They looked awful against the Boston Celtics. But, you know, the Celtics needed that game two performance, not just a win, but to go out there and, and play a Boston-style game where they were ahead by a lot. I think defensively they showed up a lot better. Um, it's going to be hard to stop the Greek freak. You can't go out there and, and, and keep him from doing the things that, that he does. I don't care how good of a defensive team you are, but... You know, Jalen Brown and Tatum and, you know, just, you know, Grant Williams and what he was able to do. I think out of 109 points, the Celtics scored um, 80 were scored by Tatum, Brown, and Grant Williams. I mean, I mean, that's what they need. They need those players to show up offensively, and they need them to D down or D up against the other players that aren't Giannis. Listen, you, you know, Giannis is going to struggle from the foul line. Giannis is, at, at some point, you're going to have to let him get to the basket. At some point, you're going to have to let him... You know, take a step back and take a shot. And if he's, you know, getting at a basket, you know, you know, you know, scoring layups, and if he's hitting three pointers and long jumpers, then you know, you're talking about one player that really could um, carry the team. Pretty similar to the way I was talking about John Morant. But you know, everybody's on the Milwaukee bandwagon, and I get it. You know, they're the defending NBA champions. They got a solid team. I do think the injury to Chris Middleton, even though you really haven't seen it impact them that much yet, I think it did hurt them yesterday. They could have used that second score or that option. I think Middleton and his ability to score 30 or 40 a game kind of quietly is going to, it kind of puts that Milwaukee team on a different level. So without him, I think it's a little easier for Boston to win. But I thought Boston with a healthy Middleton could win that series in seven. But, you know, I, I've made my predictions. You know, you know, they've been on a record. I've talked about it already. But just my, the one thing that I'm concerned about is just a lack of respect that I think the Memphis Grizzlies are getting. So speaking of a lack of respect, uh, Ryan Tannehill, quarterback of the Tennessee Titans, who you know I follow as my, as my football team, um, you know, is, is talking about how he was caught a little bit off guard. 
not just by the trade of A.J. Brown, his top receiver, but also the drafting of his potential replacement in Malik Willis. And he heard John Robinson, the general manager of the Titans, um, talk about why he made the pick. And when it came to the fourth round and, you know, the Titans ended up trading up a couple spots, they, you know, during the draft, things like this happen. You know, if there, there's a player that you realize, you're like, wow, hands down, he is the best player available on his board. Let's go out there and get him. I don't think you have to, you, you have to necessarily look at positions as much as you want to look and draft the best talent you can in the, the NFL draft. And that's one of the things that I, I always think is a good discussion because there's two different perspectives of how teams draft. You draft based off of your position needs. Hey, you need linebackers and cornerbacks and defensive edge rushers, and you load up on them. Hey, I'll take a first round, second round, third pick. This is the position on my field that I want to get better. And then there's that that thought that, well, what's wrong with taking the best player that's on the draft board? And I think that's what happened with the Titans and their decision to take Malik Willis. It wasn't necessarily the thought, hey, Ryan Tannehill's time here is is running down it was well Ryan Tannehill's not going to play for the next 10 years Malik Willis based off of projections and some people had him in the late first round and if you heard my last show talking about the uh, the the mistakes that I felt like teams were going to make don't draft a quarterback this year in the first round and some experts said, hey, as many as four quarterbacks could have gone in the first round based off of the position scarcity. And I said, don't ever make that decision. Don't ever bring in players just because you need to fill a position. And there was enough quality players that could have gone to push these quarterbacks into the rounds that they were taking. And Malik Wills still being there from Liberty in the fourth round uh, made it kind of open the minds of some other teams outside of the traditional teams that we felt were going to bring in quarterbacks. Pittsburgh, who took Kenny Pickett with the 20th overall pick. Uh, you look at Carolina, who ended up uh, eventually taking Matt Corral. Seattle, who didn't take a quarterback in a draft. But the thought was they'd be kind of thinking of, of adding a quarterback or at least somebody to compete with Drew Locke. So other teams with veteran quarterbacks at some point are thinking about their future. And I think Malik Willis is perfect for Tennessee. He's somebody that doesn't have to start right away. You don't have to go out there and, and give him first-team reps in week one. You can see him in, in, in a, you know preseason. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what he can do. Um, John Robinson said, hey, you know, depending on how quick he picks up the offense, how does the team respond to him? Is he the best quarterback on this team at this given moment? Those are all things that are going to be factored in. And Ryan Tannehill, probably not happy. Certainly not happy about the A.J. Brown trade. It hurt. Professionally, it hurt, he said. Heck of a football player. Personally, it hurt. A.J.'s a good friend. Now, those things have, you know, you figure are very important. Quarterback, receiver, relationship. To get along, not only on a football field, but to see things eye to eye. I think there was a good connection between the two of them. And, you know, Ryan Tannehill's rise back as a starting quarterback in the NFL, a lot of it had to do with his uh, cohesion with A.J. Brown. And I think that was a little bit of a surprise. You know, the Titans deciding that they're, listen, the wide receiver market was getting a little crazy. Looking at what um, Devontae Adams got. 
from the Raiders. Looking what Tyreek Hill got for the Dolphins, and you know Christian Kirk, and you know all the other receivers that ended up getting these these mega deals. Basically, forced every top wide receiver in the NFL to look themselves in the mirror and said, "Hey, am I at that level? I should be getting paid like that." And there's nothing wrong with AJ Brown wanting that. Now the Titans could have done two things. They could have paid him. Um, they, you know, they could have paid him that money, and I, I don't think it would have really hurt the rest of the construct, construction of their roster. You know, it's not like they went out there and added three players to make up for you know the 25 or so million that they would have paid AJ Brown had they kept him. So you know, they're in a position where they're below the salary cap. Maybe with some free agents left, they could shore up the roster. I'd love to see them sign Julio Jones again because I think Julio Jones, if he's healthy. Go, goes out there and really gives them a, a good chance. Him and him and Robert Woods. And then you, you look at Traylon Burks, who they drafted out of Arkansas, basically with the pick they got from the Eagles. So I think it's it's interesting if you look at the Titans. And, you know, sometimes we spend a little time focusing too much on the psyche of the quarterback. And if you heard this show and you listened to me, there's no position on the football field, and I don't care how good a player is, that's more valuable in the NFL than the quarterback. And if you want to win a Super Bowl, you need to have a quarterback in place. You need to have a quarterback that is going to be not only the leader of the team, but the representation of the team, and perhaps be one of the best players on the team. Now, Ryan Tannehill is not that, but on a team that has Derrick Henry, the receivers I just mentioned. Like I said, I would love to see Julio Jones somehow come back. I mean, they got some money that you know, the money that they were paying AJ Brown, they could give some of it to Julio Jones, who's still a free agent at the moment. But you know, look at this Titans team, and Ryan Tannehill's attitude is gonna have a lot to do with the success or failure of this team going forward. Now, is he a little bit at odds with John Robinson, the general manager? Maybe. But I'll tell you, if he goes out there and performs, if he has a better year in 2022 than he did in 2021, then I think you're looking at a situation where, uh, you know, a lot of that's going to be forgotten. There's going to be some doubt. There's going to be some doubt about the Titans being as good as they were last year. Their first round exit or the first playoff game exit after getting the bye, losing to the eventual AFC champion Bengals. Um, you know, it's going to put a lot of people in a situation where they're not going to believe in the Titans this year. Uh, is it the Colts' division with Matt Ryan there as a quarterback? You know, perhaps Houston hasn't gotten better enough. Or perhaps Jacksonville hasn't gotten better enough. So from a division standpoint, I think there is a path to the playoffs for the Titans, but there's going to be a lot on the plate of Ryan Tannehill to improve from what he, he did last year. And the expectations that this team who was going out there at one point in, what, seven weeks beating some of the top teams in the entire NFL. I think it's I think it's going to be a lot of pressure on Ryan Tannehill this year. So I'm thinking of just some random things going on in the world of sports. And obviously we talked a little bit about John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies, who I don't think are getting a lot of respect. Uh, you think of you know the NFL and the Titans and AJ Brown. To me, you know, wide receiver, you know, certainly from a diva perspective, is probably the most me position out there on the field. Where you know, from an exciting standpoint, to be able to do crazy things on the football field, um, certainly 
draws the attention uh, of the fans. And I think you have to, to be a great receiver in the NFL, you have to have an ego. And you think of Debo Samuel and the San Francisco 49ers and the thought that, hey, he demanded a trade or he asked to be traded and the 49ers didn't follow through on that. What does that mean for his future in San Francisco? But I think the other side issue is Debo Samuel's emergence as a running back last year. Number one, can that be maintained over the course of another season? Can he can he do that again with the physical issues that are involved in being a running back, taking those extra hits? Obviously, he's not he's not wearing the pads that a lot of the big time running backs wear. You know, less pads allows him to. Uh, take advantage of that breakaway speed that he has. Tyreek Hill, you know, a, a situation, hey, the, and the Dolphins going to hand them the ball. And there, there's been that change away from the running back and into the receiver. And, and as, as you follow the draft, listen, Brees Hall was taken by the Jets in the early part of the second round. You didn't have a running back going the first round of the draft this year. So you're looking at a change within the positions and as far as them being important, hey, quarterbacks, well, quarterbacks didn't go with the top of the draft because they just weren't as good this year. You know, you think of a C.J. Stroud and, uh, you know, what's his name, uh, uh, Bryce Young, who are going to be in the draft next year, probably top-level NFL quarterbacks that I think teams in the NFL are at least going to view that way. That, that wasn't on the board this year. And the draft, which people could say, hey, was a little bit weak, well, I think there's some really good running backs. Look, you look at you look at Brees Hall. I think he's going to be a thousand to fifteen hundred yard a year rusher, helping a team that's going to be able to give him the ball. You know, Zach Wilson to be able to hand it off to him and to be able to throw it to the receivers he's got, including Garrett Wilson, who they took with the tenth overall pick. You know, is it enough? The are the Jets in one really good draft? Or let's say four players or five players, they took the tight end with, with their with their next pick. But the five players that they took in their draft, is that enough to make them competitive? A lot of different side things to think about. Number one, you know, running backs, you know, from a, a fantasy football perspective, are not getting the the love that they got before. You want to have somebody that you could put in your lineup, and I think maybe from a format perspective. A fantasy football league should consider maybe opening one of the running back positions and making it kind of a flex. Maybe put another receiver there. I, I just think there's a reach when it comes to running backs in, in fantasy football drafts because you, you, you see so many running backs that are starting on a given week. And if you watch the performance of a Debo Samuel who probably gets the running back spot, you know, wide receivers dash running back, Cordell Patterson, who kind of has that flex position, um, you know, certainly a valuable player last year in fantasy football. Um, we wonder how many receivers are going to be able to have that dual versatility, but it's coming at the expense of the running backs. Now, listen, you're watching running backs, and to me, I think the change or the turning point in the value of running backs going down was what happened with Le'Veon Bell. And you go back to that season in Pittsburgh and the decision that Le'Veon Bell made, which I supported, and I think a lot of other people that were using conventional wisdom said, listen, this is the best move for the player. 
you know, the NFL using the franchise tag in a way to kind of control a player and keeping them from getting that long-term extension when you know the running back is is a very brittle position. And Le'Veon Bell, just like any star running back that's involved in every play, from running the football to catching the football out of the backfield, you know that he was one bad break away from the Pittsburgh Steelers and the NFL forgetting about him. So the fact that he couldn't get that guaranteed money over the course of a long period of time, and then what happened with it? He sat out that season, and I don't know if him sitting actually helped him or hurt him. I thought it would help him, but it looks like it hurt him because he signed that big deal with the Jets, and you could blame Adam Gase all you want, but you know, Le'Veon Bell has not been the same football player. He has not had a Le'Veon Bell type of season since that last year he played in Pittsburgh. And I think since then, you've seen an entire change of the NFL. How many running backs? You know, Alvin Kamara's value has gone down over the last couple years. And yes, there was that emphasis on having that running back that could run the football and catch passes out of the backfield. You're watching the offense get way too much into the, the centricness of the wide receiver. Catching short passes, laterals, just handing them the football. Because these are these are the fast guys. These are the breakaway players, the players that have the ability to score a touchdown every time they have the ball in their hands. So the emphasis of the NFL offense going towards the wide receivers has come at the expense of the running backs. And you wonder if you're, you know, who are the top running backs in the NFL right now? I mean, there's some good ones. You know, Kamara is still, you know, in, in a league of his own, I think. But, you know, you know, you think of guys like Zeke Elliott and Saquon Barkley. You know, Derrick Henry was hurt last year. Can you can you believe him? He's going to be at the top of his game. You know, Jonathan Taylor, of course, in Indianapolis. But there's so few of them. You know, there's good teams that are going to make runs in the playoffs. But they're doing what teams like San Francisco did. Have a, a bunch of guys that run the football. And, oh, yeah, we're going to put the ball in our top wide receivers' hands, too. Miami's going to be doing it. Um, I certainly look at, at so many other teams that have speed players like that. They're going to start to incorporate them in the offense in, in that way. So thinking a, a little bit about baseball, and we started a show with the, the, the amazing stat about the Angels, Dodgers, Yankees, and Mets never being in first place at the same time. Um, you know, the Mets made a, 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 I don't know, uh, to me, an easy decision, but one that I'm certain that they had a, a little bit of time to think about when they decided to designate Robinson Cano for assignment. Um, you're looking at a player that's had a very good career in, in, in the majors, but at this moment, he he was not one of the best 26 players on the New York Mets. And you know, to say the decision should have been made that simple, or simply over those reasons, no. You got a guy that's played in the majors now, 17 years. He sat out last season, of course, because of the PED suspension. Very good year in 2020, albeit in 49 games, 60-game season, remember. But, you know, was, was still at the top of his game at that moment. Somebody may say, oh, well, maybe it was his use of PEDs that year. Um, and, and maybe you're right. But that being said, the PED issue in baseball, I think, is still out there. Just because players aren't getting suspended for the use, I believe, means that the chemists are a step ahead. 
I think there's a lot of players that are using what Robinson Cano was using. And maybe Robinson Cano missed a, uh, a dose. Maybe he took one too many doses. Whatever. Maybe he didn't do something that he was supposed to do to be able to keep it from coming up on the test. I've made this assessment before. I believe the chemist, you're talking about legendary doctors with the utmost knowledge of science and chemistry. Are they not developing substances that are going to be undetectable on drug tests? They are. And it was happening during the steroids era. There's the cream and the clear. And, you know, there's reasons that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens never failed the test, right? And, we, you know, we assume that they, that they used. We look at all these other players that, you know, never tested positive, but we put in that, uh, in, in that labeling as steroid users, right? Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, and they never failed the test. And I think part of it was because they were using substances that at least when Major League Baseball started testing, they were not coming up. And there's baseball players in the game right now that are using. And that might bother you as a baseball fan. But, you know, it's just, it's just the truth. Now, some people say, hey, karma. Or, you know, you, you reap what you sow. Eventually, it'll come back to you. I don't know if it always will. I mean, we could look at players that have careers that go from A to B, long 20-year careers, long 18-year careers of success in Major League Baseball, have a path set to go in a Hall of Fame, and I'm not talking about any one player. There's been examples of players that have gotten through with their use of PED. So once again, what's the difference between something somebody takes from GNC and how much further or what substances in it all of a sudden make it a controlled substance? Back to Cano, I mean, you're, you're looking at the, the Mets and the use that they would have for him, certainly with a 51 OPS plus. Uh, I know it's through 12 games and 41 at-bats, but it's not cutting it at the major league level. Uh, I think it would have been a more difficult decision if you're in a Mets and Robinson Cano is hitting 320. Let's say he hit four bombs. Let's say he's he, you know, he, he had a run so far where he was nine for 20. You know, bringing that average up in a 320 range. Yeah, that's going to be a tough cut um, when the Mets have to go from 28 to 26. So I don't think it was the only decision. But you look at the other players that are on that roster, whether it's J.D. Davis, whether it's Travis Jankowski, Luis Guillorme, Dom Smith. And a lot of people will say, well, there's a, a little bit of comparison between him and Dom Smith. If Dom Smith's not there, is Robinson Cano legitimately... Backing up Pete Alonzo at first base. You know, you can play Dom Smith at first base without a problem and DH Pete. I, I don't know if you could play Cano at first base and DH Alonzo. But if you go the other way, Robinson Cano at the level that he's performing right now isn't giving you very much of the DH position. Jeff McNeil has answered a lot of questions. Dom Smith, I think you could tell this was kind of weighing on him a little bit. A little bit of pressure. He's dealing with... Uh, the, the thought of him being, you know, cut or sent to the minors or, you know, whether he wants to ask to be traded, you know, all these things going through his head. And I think once he gets that relief, I think Buck Showalter probably told him Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, hey, you're not going anywhere. He goes out there and coincidentally hit, goes four for four against the Phillies. He gets a couple big hits as the Mets and end up winning a game against uh, a couple games against the Atlanta Braves and a doubleheader. You know, this game is mental. Sports are all mental, but particularly baseball. 
And if, you're, if your thought is that everything that you do is going to be, your future is going to be determined by every at-bat, yeah, you're going to press. You're going to try to do too much. You're, you're not going to take the pitches that you, you get. You're going to be trying to star or, you know, get that moment where, where teams are going to say, wow, look, look at what he's doing in a given moment, and you're not going to get your pitch. So, you know, Robinson Cano, what his future ends up you know, is his career over right now? I don't know. I mean, he's still had a good career. Like I said, I think we're going to hit a point in baseball history, and then we're talking about the future of baseball history, where players that use steroids are going to start to get into the Hall of Fame, and I think we're going to look back at this and look at the players' numbers as opposed to crossing them off once you hear their association with steroids. You know, Rafael Palmero deserves a lot more credit for the career that he had. Manny Ramirez should get a little more love. And I think once Bonds and Clemens, who I think are the, the poster children for the steroids era, once they get their honor in baseball's Hall of Fame, I think you're going to all of a sudden start looking at all the other players that played in the steroids era. The Sosas, the Maguires. And like I said, Palmero, Ramirez, and maybe someday Robinson Cano. Now, I don't know what Robinson Cano's future is. Is he done right now? Because if you look at his career right now, 2,600 hits, 300 batting average, it's a good career. I think there's a lot of other players that are in that category. Um, I don't believe in using Harold Baines as a as a comparison to every player that isn't in the Hall of Fame. I don't think that's fair to Harold Baines, and I don't think it's fair to judge those other players. Harold Baines is in the Hall of Fame. Let's just let's just acknowledge that it's happened. Is Robinson Cano a Hall of Famer right now? you got to take the steroids conversation out of it because eventually these players are getting in. Not not necessarily Cano. Is he, uh, I think he's a, still a borderline candidate even if you take away the use of PEDs. Manny Ramirez, to me, is more of a Hall of Famer. Rafael Palmero, to me, is more of a Hall of Famer. How many players in baseball history with 3,000 hits, 500 home runs, Miguel Cabrera just joined the list, of course. What You're talking about Pujols and A-Rod and Mays and Aaron. And I think the only other one was Eddie Murray. So you're looking at a legendary player. When you talk about the top offensive position players of all time, it's hard to name 50 other players that dominated a game the way Rafael Palmaro did. Now, he's, he's not a, a fan or fans don't love him because of the way he exited the game. Basically throwing Miguel Tejada on the bus, saying, under the bus, saying, I took substances that he gave me. That's why he failed the test. The, whole, the Baseball Hall of Fame isn't for the best people. And I think at some point we got to judge the statistics, the numbers, the impact of the players, the way they played. Just like football does. Just like basketball does. You know, baseball added this uh, ambiguous... Character clause, I, and I don't, and I don't know if it was even intended to be that when it was put in there. I, I, I my envision when the Hall of Fame is is coming out, baseball saying, "Hey, we're, you know, 1936, we're going to name our first Hall of Fame class," and you know what? It's important to let the general public know what the criteria is for somebody to be in the Hall of Fame. And I think it was one person that's just jotting down random things, saying, you know, they they had to be a good player, they had to have an impact on the sport, you know, they had to play ten years, which you know that's one of one of the things, um, it, you know, they they had to be judged well by their peers, um, 
you know, accomplishments had to be up at the top of what, what the game had considered. And I think very quietly the word character was put in there, not with the intention to be what it is. And the baseball writers, you know, 100 years later almost, we're looking at, what, 80-something years later, have taken that word and given it its own definition. And I think it's time as we get ready for the next show that we're going to do on Saturday, Saturday the 7th, we'll be back with you in another edition of the Past Ball Show. I'm going to leave you on this point. The character clause, to me, is something that's got to be stricken from Major League Baseball. I think it's becoming too literal. I don't think it was ever intended to be used in a way that it is. You know, you look at players that are in the Hall of Fame, you look at members of the Hall of Fame, somebody like Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who literally said there will be a black player playing on the same field as a white player over his dead body. And he meant that literally, because there was no chance that black players were going to play on the same field in Major League Baseball with white players until Kennesaw Mountain Landis is dead, yet he's got a plaque in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Past Ball Show is brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Alwis Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Stay tuned. Another show coming 5-7 Saturday. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.